the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight we're going to be talking about what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and that is the coronavirus and uh, what it's doing with our society, our economy, and of course our health. Uh, to talk to us tonight, we have Dr. Mark Bruce, a emergency room physician expert. He's going to talk to us about what is going on with uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19. And uh, with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Bruce. Dr. Bruce, thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, you're, you're very welcome. Good to be with you. Well, good, good to have you. Um, a little of your background, you're an emergency physician, and tell us a little about your credentials and, and how you're involved in the uh, coronavirus issues? Well, um, you know, we see it all in the emergency department. I am a full-time emergency medicine physician, also involved with a lot of uh, international work, uh, doing uh, a lot of training right now. We've certainly done a lot of direct patient care in disaster zones. Disasters are core content in emergency medicine. And so uh, we train for disasters all the time, both man-made, both uh, disasters like we're seeing right now with uh, this epidemic slash pandemic, but also terrorism and uh, uh, na- natural disasters too. So, so that's uh, that's uh, this is in my wheelhouse. So, well, over the years we've had a number of different, uh, I, I guess, pandemics and just the spread of uh, novel viruses. Uh, and viruses that uh, have caused us uh, public health concerns, such as SARS and MRSA. Is it MRSA? I'm thinking of something uh, else. MERS. MERS. Mediterranean, right? Yeah, it was a Middle East Middle uh, Eastern. respiratory. Yeah. Uh, those, uh, those things. Have you been involved in, in following the spread of those viruses and the population, what they've done? Well, I was over in Asia during the SARS epidemic, uh, in 03. So I had a chance to kind of see that up close and personal and saw the fear factor associated with that. Uh, it was uh, a little different, uh, in both in good ways and bad ways from the current COVID crisis. They're both part of the same family of viruses. Uh, the SARS epidemic had a much, much higher uh, mortality rate, death rate associated with it. It was uh, pretty much all in uh, 9 to 10% death rate, so it was, a, it was a very virulent virus, but again, it caused most, most of the deaths that were uh, in older people, again, with that. Um, the the uh, COVID-19 epidemic, uh, the virus itself is more, um, less virulent. We're looking at probably a 1 to 2% death rate when it's all in. We really don't have the adequate numbers right now to say what it's going to be. Uh, but once uh, we get a lot of widespread testing, I think we'll have a better handle on that. And that'll be uh, upcoming here just in the next week or so, I think. Um, but uh, it, it's 
the, the challenge with COVID-19 is that you can be shedding virus and be uh, infective to other people before you're symptomatic. Whereas with SARS, even though as a more virulent virus, you were usually symptomatic before you were shedding virus. So made it a little bit easier in terms of uh, being able to get that, that epidemic under control, although it still took eight months uh, to really do that back in uh, 02, 03, 04 in that, in that time range. So. Uh, you're talking about COVID-19. Uh, we've, we've been talking about this on this program uh, for several weeks in a row now because it is such a dominant subject and such an important concern to everyone. Um, some of the things that we've heard that are, are somewhat new, maybe you can confirm for us from what you've been hearing. Uh, when we talk about uh, the idea of pre-symptomatic uh, transmission of the virus, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, if that's happening, how is it happening? We initially heard that it was happening by droplets from coughs and sneezes and that kind of thing. And we heard that humans have been receptors uh, in the face, primarily in the mucosa of the mouth and the nose and the eyes. Um, now we're hearing things such as uh, the viruses uh, being airborne, can be airborne for a couple hours. Uh, is, is that a rumor or is, do we have something confirming that? Well, I've heard that too. I haven't seen the definitive scientific studies. Probably it's true because of just, uh, that wouldn't surprise me just because of the rapid increase that we've seen in affected uh, persons with this, um, but uh, again, the the uh, primary vector I think is is primarily droplet uh, and self inoculation. Many times when uh, somebody sneezes or uh, somebody who's infected that touches a door handle, you touch that door handle and then touch your own nose. You've probably just been inoculated, but that is a self inoculation, and so. So one of the, the advantages for frequent hand washing, uh, frequent cleaning of surfaces, especially when somebody's been around that has been ill, uh, you know, those are, those are uh, very common sense type of uh, precautions that you take with any infectious disease, but uh, probably even more so now uh, with COVID-19. You know, as, as we're average people wandering around in our normal daily activities, uh, I think we have a hard time conceptualizing what we are doing when we're touching viruses. Uh, for example, I, I think we've all seen the blown up microscopic uh, picture of what one virus looks like uh, of uh, COVID-19. But when we touch a door, like you just mentioned, you touch a door, uh, how, how covered? If, if these were visible, would this be like putting our hand into a, a door covered with uh, with mossy like mold or something or we're, we're just in, are, are we or are we just picking up a couple of virus um, I guess virus molecules or virus uh, yeah you, it, it, it's probably virus molecules that you're picking up but there's a fairly rapid um, a reproduction rate with us and uh, and it, it it this particular virus and all the coronaviruses have an, an affinity towards lung tissue means that they like lungs. Uh, so they may start out uh, really in the upper respiratory tract, uh, but very rapidly can spread to the lower respiratory tract, and that's what's creating the pneumonias uh, that are so problematic with us. Um, so the, um, that's, that's the challenge with this, is, uh, is with, with uh, that particular factor associated with the coronavirus, 
uh, is that, like I say, unlike the, the influenza, parainfluenza, rhinoviruses, the, those cause, uh, that those have more of an affinity towards the upper respiratory tract. But once a coronavirus basically comes in contact with the upper respiratory tract, it can rapidly migrate down to the lower respiratory tract. When you say rapid, what, what time frame are we talking about? That's a good question. Now, we don't know for sure exactly what the incubation period is. It's been uh, estimated be- between a few days to uh, as many as several weeks. So I see. Well, during during this time frame, when you've self-inoculated and you, you touched the door handle and you touched your nose and you may have a couple of uh, virus molecules in, in your nose, uh, is there anything you can do at that point, or are you essentially condemned to the full course of the disease? Well, you know, most people are going to do really well with this, quite frankly. Uh, the the course for the vast majority of people is going to be very mild or even asymptomatic. Uh, so, especially in a younger population, we know the people that are, you know, very vulnerable to this. And those are patients that are older, and when I mean older, I'm talking about 60 and older, and also patients that have a lot of other medical problems, especially patients with uh, chronic respiratory issues, heart disease, um, diabetes, you know, or on medications that we know that can cause problems associated with uh, being uh, immune compromised, like chemotherapy, patients that have AIDS, uh, and even certain medications that we call biologics that people take for chronic diseases, like you see advertised on TV a lot, the ulcerative colitis, psoriatic arthritis, pretty much any medication that ends in MAB, those are ones that certainly can put you at risk. So, Well, we're, we're talking to Dr. Mark uh, Bruce, who is a uh, an expert emergency physician, and uh, we're talking about uh, COVID-19, the uh, coronavirus, and uh, basically we're answering the second layer of questions, the questions dealing with uh, the spread, how long does it take to spread, and what can you do once you find out that you've contracted it, even if you haven't, because you're probably asymptomatic when you've just been self-inoculated, as you've been calling it. Uh, so, uh, what, uh, Doctor, I have like one minute for one, one other question. When we talk about elderly, we're talking about people who are 60-plus, and in addition to that, we're talking about people who have these comorbidities, such as heart conditions and diabetes. Uh, when we come back from our break, we'll be asking about, what about uh, people who are over 60 and they have one or two of these comorbidities? Uh, are they facing a death sentence if they get this? Uh, so we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We're going to be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our second segment of The Advocate Tonight. We're with Dr. Mark Bruce, an emergency room physician, uh, expert in what's going on with the uh, COVID-19 virus, uh, the coronavirus that we're all talking about. And uh, we were talking in terms of, uh, during the last segment, about the specific uh, effects of the, the virus, how long does it spread and where does it spread. Uh, so, Dr. Uh, Bruce, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome, Nick. Appreciate it very much. 
Um, again, uh, talking about uh, mortality rates, uh, we, we talk about, uh, again, I'll, I'll sort of share with you the words and facts we have been hearing, and you can confirm or, or correct us or update us, as it may be. Uh, with the coronavirus, we heard that it's 10 times more lethal than the flu that we're going through now during the flu season. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's probably accurate. Again, we uh, will have a better handle on that probably in a few more weeks once, again, we, we get a little bit more testing in. But I would put it in a, an, an additional perspective in the sense that it's five to ten times less uh, lethal than what the SARS virus was. Well, that, that gives us an optimistic hope uh, in these days. Um, yeah. I'm only chuckling because of the fact that, you know, be, between just the public health issues, uh, we're experiencing just this wide variety of economic uh, issues that are falling as collateral damage to this whole uh, coronavirus situation. Right. But, but, right. When, but when we talk about um, mortality rates uh, and we talk about demographics, we talk about age grouping, uh, I know that uh, the the red line for when you're an elder person is 60 for, for a purpose of public health. Uh, when we look at percentages of people uh, of the, I guess, mortality rates of people who are in their 60s versus people who are in their 70s versus people who are in their 80s, for each decade, each cohort, the uh, death rate is higher. Uh, do, do we have any idea what the death rates are now or the mortality rate? Mortality sounds so much nicer than death rate, by the way. Uh, the the average thing. age of people dying in America with this, again, with the uh, limited uh, number of deaths that we've had so far, you know, one is too many, certainly, but the average age has been about 80, and I will tell you that those that have died have been people that were medically fragile to begin with. Uh, the vast majority of those people were a cluster from a nursing home or extended care facility up in King County, uh, Washington, the Seattle area in Kirkland. Uh, and so that was the, the biggest, the biggest uh, cluster of, of uh, uh, deaths that we've seen from this and also uh, where it's almost considered to be endemic right now in terms of, of that. A few hot spots around the country. Um, the fear factor is very, very high, but quite frankly, I, I think it's, it's been blown well out of proportion in terms of fear. But I will also tell you I understand why. And that is the first rule of any epidemic is you protect the uninfected. Well, the people that are very vulnerable to this are in our, and we need to be very much aware of these people in our own communities, are those that are elderly and the patients that have multiple uh, comorbidities, uh, heart disease, diabetes, uh, are immune compromised, uh, people that have had uh, known respiratory ailments. Quite frankly, this is a great time for people to quit smoking if they smoke because smokers always have a more difficult time handling any respiratory illness that takes a lot longer for them to get well and they're going to probably get sicker if they're a smoker with this than what the non-smokers will be we don't have a lot of data to kind of uh, see that but i think whenever uh, this is all over and done with we're going to see a fairly dramatic impact with uh, tobacco use with this too well, this is certainly a once-in-a-generation event that, that we're witnessing right now. And hopefully we won't be witnessing another one uh, over the next, say, 50 years. Uh, but uh, when we talk about comorbidities such as heart disease and diabetes, 
uh, everything comes in a matter of degrees. So uh, we could have people with uh, mild heart problems uh, or sure. serious heart <clears throat> problems. Same thing with diabetes. They can be uh, pre-diabetic or they can be heavily insulin dependent and unstable. Right. Um, right. I mean, it, it do, runs do, the full spectrum of any disease process. Sure. Now, now with that, though, do, do we have any uh, lines as far as how much heart disease or... And what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to speak to the people out there who have been diagnosed with heart disease or diabetes, and they don't know just because if they have that moniker whether they're in trouble or not. Uh, how bad does the diabetes have to be before they seriously worry about it, uh, if they get it? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. same thing with heart disease. Yeah, the, the, the worse the disease, again, the worse on the spectrum of uh, of a disease like you just mentioned, you've got the kind of diabetes where you take a pill and you die in your sleep when you're 95. And you've got the other kind of diabetes where, you know, you're on shots before you're a teenager and, you know, you're on dialysis before you're 30 years old. I mean, it's a very much more aggressive form, same disease, but just a different place on that spectrum of uh, severity of that disease. Same thing with heart disease. You've got somebody who's got hypertension and may have had a stint or two, uh, but is uh, it fit and is uh, uh, does all the things that their doctors have told them to do. They take a statin, they take their blood pressure medication regularly. Those are patients that are relatively well controlled, but if somebody is having things like exertional uh, angina, if they're getting chest pain when they're walking upstairs, or they have a history of chronic congestive heart failure, those are patients, again, on that other end of the spectrum of heart disease. Well, so, that, again, it's those patients that have the more severe forms of the disease that are more at risk whenever they, if they do contract the COVID-19. Having said that, it's not an automatic death sentence. Uh, it, uh, this is something that uh, we are, they're, they're starting to do some experimental treatments in Nebraska right now. We will not know kind of the outcomes of that treatment really for probably several more weeks or even maybe a couple of months. You know, the vaccine, uh, they are working on the vaccine right now. The vaccine is not going to be a panacea, but it will provide, again, an extra element of protection uh, for just uh, the coronavirus, probably family in general. Uh, we, From a vaccine, just speaking a little bit to that, vaccines are not a panacea. We can see, and everybody gets the flu vaccine, or a lot of people do. Where people, we encourage people all the time to get the flu vaccine, but they consider the average effectiveness of the flu vaccine to be about forty percent. This year, it was actually a little bit above average. It was about forty-six percent. So, uh, it, it, even if it's not completely protective, it still provides a modicum of protection in terms of the severity of illness and mitigates the, the, the duration of the symptoms that people get with influenza. Sure. So uh, I suspect it will be like that, too, uh, with uh, whatever virus they come up with. Uh, viruses are notorious for morphing or changing a little bit, but we have not seen the COVID-19 virus change or morph into a more virulent form. Well, that is good. Let me, let me ask you, we have a couple of minutes. Let me ask a couple of real quick questions for very short answers. So yes or no is okay. possible. Here we go. Um, mask, yes or no? Pre-infection, post-infection? Face masks? Uh, my response is yes. It does two things. First of all, it, it's not completely protective. 
But what it does do is it limits droplet spread. So if somebody's coughing or sneezing, it kind of contains that, and it does a second thing both to the to the person whoever's wearing the mask. I always wear a mask when I'm going into a room when somebody's got a fever or any kind of respiratory complaint. We do that all through the flu season, pretty much. But for me as a provider, not only does it keep the droplet from hitting me, but it keeps me from touching my nose because I've got a mask over my nose so that I'm not going to self-inoculate. So the, now the mask we talk about all the time is the N95. Is that what people if they're no, have? No, no, I'm talking about just a regular surgical mask. Surgical the N95 mask. is certainly a sealed, fitted mask, and that is much more protective even for any airborne virus in that circumstance. Well, the uh, have time for only uh, one uh, more question. We'll have to have you on again if you if you don't mind. Real quick question: Do we know whether or not once you've gone through the full course of the uh, COVID-19, does that inoculate you already uh, with immunity so you don't get a second uh, shot of it, a second experience? We do, we do not know that. We have seen some. We think that that probably for most people will hold true, but we have known there are some cases where people that have basically gone through the, the viral illness, recovered, that they start testing positive again. So we do know that that has happened but that doesn't happen for nearly uh, for the majority of people that get this. So it's so, a good question. And, so in, and we need we need more data before we can really get to the bottom of that. So get a lot of tests, wash your face, wash your hands, keep your hands away from your face, and uh, socially separate. Well, doc, yeah. Dr. Bruce, thank you so much. We're out of time. But uh, thank you much. We'll, we'll love to have you on again to, as this progresses. And... Uh, get some basic information that uh, is very useful to us average people. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. We'll be back. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In uh, the next two segments, we're going to be talking about energy. Uh, it's in the news every day. Uh, even though we have other topics in the news, energy is something that has a direct plug-in to what our economy is doing. Talking with us tonight is the author of a movie, of a, movie, of a book called Fueling America, an insider's journey, uh, Mr. Jack Kerfoot. Uh, Jack, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's uh, wonderful talking to you about uh, a topic that uh, is just sort of like maybe number two or three on the list of uh, topics that we're all paying attention to right now. And uh, talking about uh, energy, oil, gas, green energy. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, my background is I grew up in Oklahoma, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then uh, I served with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam and then returned to start uh, university in 1970. Uh, and I earned a degree in geophysics, or degrees in geophysics from the University of Oklahoma, and I, was, I graduated about the time America was faced with a different type of energy crisis. In the 1970s, there were line oil shortages, starting in the 1973 with the oil embargo, and then oil prices were ramping up dramatically from $8 a barrel, then to 12 then to 18 over a few years. Inflation rates were going sky high, um, so we were talking about uh, inflation rates of 7, 8, 10, 12 percent a year. 
so at that time, I just when I graduated, I joined the oil and gas industry uh, because I thought saw it as an opportunity to help my country uh, provide fuel to keep our uh, economy going and our energy going. That took me around the world. Uh, I've worked for majors and in independents around the world from Southeast Asia, but also worked in Africa, Europe, South America, and around in Australia. So around the world dealing with governments, um, sheiks, potentates, uh, a wide range of, uh, of people around the world, which has been a fascinating industry. Uh, in 2006, I had dinner with T. Boone Pickens, who was a well-known well oil man at the time. He passed away last year, unfortunately. And he and I, our, he and I had a conversation about renewable energy. In 2005, the U.S. passed a bipartisan bill called the 2005 Energy Act, and it was designed to look for ways to provide incentives for industry to find more energy. So there were tax incentives or tax credits for nuclear, uh, incentives for oil and gas, which resulted in development technology of fracking or hydraulic fracturing, uh, and then also for renewable energy. And T. Boone was telling me about how he was moving rapidly toward investing in, or was in, rapidly investing in, wind in Texas. And we then had discussions about renewable energy and climate change and the uncertainties of climate change. But even without the certainties of the uncertainty of climate change, we also discussed the advantages of clean, green energy. And that ultimately led me to become what I am today, which is an advocate for renewable energy, although I certainly appreciate the importance of fossil fuels in our economy today. Well, very good. Thank you for that rundown. Uh, sounds like you're definitely uh, the expert. Uh, in thinking about uh, our sources of energy, uh, starting with uh, you know, coal, fossil fuels, uh, petroleum products, and now renewable energy. If you could sort of compare, being radio, we don't have the uh, advantages of being on TV or having a PowerPoint going on, but what would the pie chart look like over the last 20, 30 years uh, showing how we've changed with renewable energy, how we've changed with uh, domestic production of oil, and uh, let's say 30 years ago when we had a lot of, maybe a, a larger amount of imported oil, how that that has changed? Well, let's let's start off. Let's say to <clears throat> I'll take you all the way back to 1940. In 1940, the United States was the OPEC of the world. We were the largest producer and exporter of oil in the world. Uh, ultimately, that was one of the reasons for the Second World War. When Japan invaded China, the U.S. is an effort to try and force them to stop their expansion into other countries, cut off their supplies of oil, and that prompted uh, Japan to attack the United States at Pearl Harbor and ultimately go into an uh, expansion into other countries that had oil, like Indonesia and uh, Malaysia. Now, 1951, the United States becomes a net oil importer because of one item, the automobile. And as our economy grew, we became more and more dependent on fossil fuel, coal, oil, and natural gas. In the 1950s, uh, America saw nuclear as potentially a solution to our energy needs because it was almost, uh, almost limitless in power. But obviously, as we've evolved in our understanding of nuclear, we recognize this, although nuclear generates zero greenhouse gas emissions, it is very costly. And of course, there's always the issues of nuclear waste disposal. Now, let's take all the way back to 15 years ago, in 2005, uh, like I say, the Energy Act was passed. At that time, the United States was generating over 50% of our power from coal. 
and perhaps five or six percent of our power for renewable energy. The other sources were at that time, uh, 2005, nuclear was about 20 percent, and then the rest was natural gas, predominantly natural gas. Now, with the energy, <coughs> with the Energy Act since that time, in April of last year, approximately coal now generates less than 22 percent of our power, uh, and renewable energy has increased to 23 percent. Uh, natural gas is probably 55% right now, uh, and the driving reasons for these changes are economics. What's happened is there are four grades of coal. The highest grade coal, uh, anthracite, is, uh, generates the most power per ton, or British thermal unit is a measure of power. And <clears throat> that has just been, just about been mined out not only in the United States but around the world. So utilities now are using lower cost coal. Now, the price for a cheap low-grade coal right now is about $2.5, $2.50 a ton. And, of course, it fluctuates depending on where you are. But what has gone up dramatically is the cost of transportation. So the cost to transport a ton of coal now is over $12 a ton by railroad. And, of course, it now takes more coal to generate the uh, lower-quality coal than to generate the same amount of power as higher-quality coal. Uh, the, when we talk about oil and natural gas, what we've got to recognize there are two factors at play, supply and demand. The world is consuming about today about 36 billion barrels of oil a year. Um, and the problem is we're, re we're replacing about 2 to 3 percent of that. And you see that if we look at the actual price volatility over the last 15 years, you're going to see dramatic price rises, like I say, in 2006. The price of oil was about $60 a barrel. Two, two years later, it was 100 Then with the financial crisis driving down on the economies around the world, the price dropped down. And now we've seen it come up again, and now we've seen it drop down again. But the volatility sometimes are what I would say associated with the global political markets. Russia sees an opportunity here to, uh, shall we say, flood the market with cheaper oil that they have, and that helps their economy. It also, what it does to the U.S., because our resurgence in oil and gas over the last 15 years has been from fracking, and the, the, the cost to, uh, to generate oil from hydraulic fracturing is much higher than conventional oil, uh, let's say, like they have in Russia or in Saudi Arabia. And also the other factors at play are they are competing for world markets and market share. So Russia and Saudi Arabia, as well as Iraq and Iran, are all competing for markets with major consumers of oil. Uh, because the U.S. is almost completely sustainable right now with oil, the major markets that are importers are places like China and India, uh, but also the rest of Southeast Asia and, to a degree, Europe as well. So again, you know, global markets, some of it's uh, politically driven and some of it is simply uh, trying to gain market share. Natural gas is in abundance right now. However, any fossil fuel is not renewable. So ultimately, we will start in the next, it may be 40, 50, 60 years, start to see a decline in the accessibility of natural gas, and therefore the price will come up as well. You know, with uh, that, that, by the way, is a fantastic uh, overview of, of the energy situation. And uh, you mentioned Russia and uh, them driving down the prices. How much of that driving down the prices by the Russians is uh, pointed at the United States to hit our fracking market? Well, there are two things that they're, they're actually going to hit with driving down the prices. The most expensive uh, form of oil production right now is um, tar sands. Uh, tickled primarily in Canada, 
um, and you're already seeing tar sands projects closed down. You have to realize that tar sands are very heavy, viscous, crude, uh, and so it's very difficult to ship. In fact, most of it is uh, they have to put in, uh, mix it with other lighter uh, petroleum products to be able to put it into uh, tank cars on the railroad. I see. Uh, let, me, let me interrupt for just a moment. We're, we're sure. talking to Jack Kerfoot. Uh, an expert on energy. We're talking about oil and gas, and we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Jack again about uh, green renewable energy and where we're going with that, and uh, we'll talk about the economy. It's all intertwined. So uh, don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for Tonight. Uh, tonight, we're very uh, pleased to have with us Mr. Jack Kerfoot, an expert in energy. We've been talking about uh, oil and the history of, well, the economic history, recent economic history of oil in this country, and uh, talking about uh, what's happening globally as well as what's happening with regard to green energy. Uh, Jack, thank you again for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Nick. No, we're talking about the intertwining uh, of oil prices and the economy generally. Uh, like during this time frame where we have the uh, coronavirus uh, basically uh, causing a lot of people to cancel flights and cruises, that has to cause a, a, a drop in demand for uh, oil. And uh, if so, how, how, is that, uh, how is that playing out? Well, absolutely. It, again, it's supply and demand. Uh, if we look at the actual the uses for oil, 80% of oil is used uh, around the world for transportation, for whether it's for uh, planes, ships, or cars from that standpoint. So when we see a drop in demand for tra- uh, travel, then we see a drop in demand for fuel. We have to recognize that when we talk about refineries, oil refineries, that each one, there's very low margins on refining. So each refinery typically has specialty products. So when there is an oversupply of, of or a, a drop in demand, then there's an oversupply on the refineries. And their immediate reaction is to cut prices to try and uh, keep shipping their products so they can keep producing and operating at a profit, uh, a profit margin from that standpoint. Now, from the natural gas su- supply, uh, that probably is more stable in, in the long term, although things that will change the supply on natural gas is heating. Uh, obviously, natural gas is a primary source of heating from that standpoint. But we've seen an oversupply of natural gas um, for a lot of sources. One, it's uh, very plentiful in a lot of different regions in the United States and in different places around the world. Fracking has created a new supply of natural gas. Another factor is demands in countries that don't have major pipeline infrastructure like the United States and Europe is liquefied natural gas. And that's where the gas is super cooled uh, and it is then put on a stored in a huge tank and then transported by ship and a liquefied natural gas LNG tanker to major places in the world, usually countries that are energy uh, have very limited energy resources, such as Japan, uh, South Korea, and China. China is now a major importer of liquefied natural gas, as is India as well. And uh, Western Europe has been using liquefied natural gas as well. So in 2007, 2008, the U.S. built, they thought there was a natural gas shortage. 
uh, and I write about that in the book when in actual fact it wasn't. And so the U.S. built eight LNG export terminals, and two years later they were converted to LNG export uh, terminals. Today we have over 20, some odd, 23, 24 LNG export terminals in the U.S. shipping on liquefied natural gas around the world. But again, to help you understand supply and demand, LNG prices, liquefied natural gas prices, typically, well, let's say a few years ago, the price of natural gas in Canada and the U.S. was running about $2.40, $2.50 per standard cubic foot or equivalent of MBTU. Um, and the LNG market was selling at well over $10. Uh, per MMBTU. Well, about six months ago, the price of LNG dropped down to about five, and it's currently about three dollars per MMBTU because there's an oversupply. And the gas markets in the U.S. Uh, have dropped down to about dollar ninety, dollar eighty uh, per MMBTU, which is based on a central gathering system in the U.S. called the Henry Hub in Louisiana. You know, we, we talk about uh, liquid natural gas. Uh, I have one question, just based on my lack of knowledge of it. Is it all uh, sort of subterranean mined natural gas, or is there renewable areas of natural gas like methane and uh, fermented things and, and so forth? No, this is conventional hydrocarbons. You get oil, and sometimes you get just gas reservoirs, and sometimes you get oil and gas reservoirs. And so this is basically, if it's natural gas, let's say if it's offshore or onshore, it's piped into a, a gathering system, a pipeline gathering system. And we have an uh, extensive pipeline gathering system across the United States. You can basically look at the pipelines in the U.S., and if you look at places, let's say, from Dallas, all the gas fields from Dallas east go uh, to the east and part of the U.S. and areas to the west of Dallas go west. So the West Texas, Permian Basin, uh, El Paso areas, Midland Texas areas, Wyoming, Colorado, gas pipelines tend to go west. The gas in uh, Canada and British Columbia and Alberta tend to go west from that, uh, from that standpoint. So we have a massive infrastructure of pipelines, and that's one of the reasons that the easy uh, supply and transportation facilities that we have allows the gas to be easily transported, which is why we have some of the cheapest gas prices in the world, natural gas. But when, um, when you talked about, uh, I think it was natural gas earlier, you, you talked about it going up from uh, a small level, like around, what, 5 to 6% in 2005, up to 23%. That, that's no, that was system. actually uh, renewables. Oh, renewables, uh, generally. Uh, that's, yeah, that was the amount of power. And we talk about the power grid right now. Right now, the the power grid is consisted of about 23, 24% of our power is from renewables. Uh, about 22, 21% is from coal. Uh, you've got about 10, 15% of our power is from nuclear power. And then the rest is uh, natural gas. Uh, when we talk about renewable, we talking about solar and wind and um, nuclear. Uh, when we talk about renewables, we're really talking about wind, both onshore and offshore wind. We're talking about solar hybrid, which is a combination at a project that would both wind and solar. It would also include hydropower. It would include geothermal, and it would include uh, biofuels that have also been used as well and also waste energy projects as well. Places like Sweden, for instance, they convert 97% of their liquid and solid waste. Instead of shipping it to landfill, they basically convert it to uh, energy. It's called a waste-to-energy system. And what's fascinating about that is that actually generate, does generate some greenhouse gases, but the greenhouse gases are far less than just from uh, gases from a landfill. 
Plus, of course, mm. it takes up far less space, uh, and you're not worrying about taking up enormous quantities of space for, with your landfills in the area. Now, when we talk about uh, nuclear, going back to the 1950s, um, one one question I have is that we have nuclear power plants and all of the uh, the details and the regulations regulating large nuclear reactors uh, for metropolitan areas. Uh, yet uh, the Navy has had uh, small nuclear reactors for ships, and I'm not uh, aware of any, if, if many, uh, problems or accidents with our small nuclear reactors. The question is, uh, is there any technology on the horizon where smaller nuclear reactors can support uh, small rural towns and not have to go through all of the large nuclear plant type uh, construction? Well, the answer to that question is there are some new uh, projects that have come out. When I wrote my book, uh, at the end of every few years that I, ma- I make my moves, my specialty was really turnarounds and startups of companies. I talk about the evolution of the energy across the U.S. And we have to realize that the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission was highly influenced by Admiral Rickover. Uh, and because he had come out of the Navy, he was very familiar with the nuclear power and the major uh, the major ships, but the submarines and the surface vessels, and the advantages of that. The U.S. has a, the best uh, record for nuclear uh, safety in the world um, from that standpoint. However, because he was then head after he left the Navy, he headed up the Atomic Energy Commission, he was heavily influencing the, the fact that he wanted that one type of standardization of nuclear reactor, and that probably held back the development of new technology in, for nuclear power. However, over the last five to ten years, there have been developments in smaller nuclear power plants. But even when, when we talk about smaller, we're, st- we're still talking about power plants that could uh, provide significant power to not just a city, but to a uh, region of the state. And that's important because, quite candidly, Ever, the, the, uh, the environment that we have across the U.S. is varied, and not every state or every region of the U.S. can generate sufficient power to be 100% renewable. So to me, nuclear is a, certainly a, a path or a power fuel source that will be vi- viable for the foreseeable future. Well, let, let's uh, all hold our breath and watch and see how that works. In the meantime, we're watching the oil world uh, sort of control what's going on with our economy, sort of... It's a tail that wags the whole dog, I'm afraid. Uh, but we're talking to Jack Kerfoot. Uh, he's the author of a book called Fueling America, an Insider's Journey. Uh, definitely an expert in the field. So I think if we want to sit back and find out what's going on with, um, with our economy based on energy, this is the way to go. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Nick, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea.